Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Just give us a quick introduction of of who you are. I know you're up. Are you still up in uh, northern Colorado, up there in Greeley? I, I, I'm not in Greeley. I'm in Northern Colorado. I'm uh, based out of Fort Collins. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I, cool. to, I lived in Cheyenne for, uh, for about five years. Uh, and I left Cheyenne every chance I could to go down to Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> too damn cold. And there were no, there were no, there were no, you know, anyway, I was, I was back when I was a young bachelor days and chasing all the girls. We went down to Colorado state and that type of stuff. But anyway, I know where you're at. So it's not a fun time. This is kind of a chilly part of the year to be up, up in that area. Yeah, yeah, and the and as you know, the wind chill can uh, mm-hmm. can bite into you a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I I know in that in Cheyenne, particularly, it was so damn windy, Laramie, Cheyenne, and you know, it would sometimes be fifteen twenty below, and man, that wouldn't be going sixty miles an hour. And I think that wind chill was There's nothing to block 50, it. Sixty below, it was miserable. You couldn't even be outside literally for more than a minute or so, and you'd be like, well, they they even have those like uh, railroad crossing arms that go across I-80 when you go through Laramie because it gets so windy, the 18 wheels will blow over. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're, yeah. we see that. You see the 18 wheels blowing off the road or shutting down Laramie Pass all the time. I mean, it was just uh, uh, pretty pretty crazy stuff up there. You know, I spent like five years out there, you know, those nuclear, we- nuclear, nuclear bomb fields out there. And, you know, we had some in Colorado. I remember, uh, was it, I think one of your representatives, was it Pat, Pat Schroeder? Was she Colorado? Yeah. She said there's no nuclear weapons in Colorado or something. I said, yeah, there is. I go to them all the time. Kind <laughs> of funny day. So Chris, tell us about yourself. Tell us a little bit about your story, man. Sure. Sure. <clears throat> yeah. So, uh, now I'm a, a training decathlete right now looking to make the Olympic team next year. I guess it's now this year. Um, but this is, this is something I've done for a long time. I've been an athlete ever since I was a little kid. You know, that's always been kind of my identity. That's been my thing. And I was a competing decathlete from the ages of 17 to 27. Uh, so, I, so I did it for a long time, did it through, through college, did it for five years after college, uh, but then I retired. <clears throat> I, I'd been doing it for a decade plus, and you know, I'd, I'd really given it my all, and I felt like my, my time in athletics, my time in track and field was over. So I, I retired in 2012 from track and field, from decathlon. Uh, never, never had any inkling that I would get back into it again. But about five, six years later, I, I had a change of mind. I had a change of heart. And I decided that um, I, I had some unfinished business in, in the world of track and field and, and decathlon. And so in uh, late 2018, I announced that I was coming out of retirement. And in January of 2019, <clears throat> just, just a year ago, I began, uh, resumed full-time training for, for decathlon at the age of 
34. So um, I am in a, a very unexpected second career as a professional decathlete. And really, no, no one is more surprised that I'm doing this than me. And it's, um, but it, it's something that I felt I, I, I really had to do. Um, felt like I, I had no choice just based on, and you know, we can get into it, but based on the things that I had learned, the ways that I had changed after I retired, um, looking back on my experience, looking back on myself as an athlete from the, from the outsider's perspective for the first time, felt like this, this was something that I, that I just had to do. So now we're, now we're in the thick of it. Hey, Chris, uh, you're, you said you're, how old are you, 34 now? I'm, I'm 34, yeah. Yeah, so what is, I mean, and, and I would assume that's elderly as far as decathletes go. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, Ash Neaton and some of the guys, you know, Brian Clay, I don't know how old they are, how old they are when they, when they, when they, when they did their stuff. But what is, I mean, you know, you did it in your 20s. I, I, I read that you had maybe some injuries that kind of shut you down a little bit, and it's tough to, tough to deal with that. I'm in my, you know, I'm in my early 50s. I turned 53 in a couple of days. And I'm, I'm, man, I feel great. I'm still kicking ass and going strong. And, you know, I mean, and so I think age is becoming less and less of a number. But what are, what are the realities of, of what the decathletes have done traditionally at the Olympic level from an age perspective? Are you, are you going to be an anomaly if you make the team and compete? Or is this, is this not that unusual? Yeah, it's, it's not unheard of, actually. It's, it's, you know, as you guessed, it's definitely on the higher end. Of, of age for decathletes, but a, a decathlete, a male multi-eventer is gonna reach their prime, physically speaking, in their late 20s. Um, a, lot, a lot of the best decathletes are you know, 26, 27. Um, that, that's usually the age when sort of reach physical maturation and uh, really above all else, it's, it's when you've had enough years, enough reps under your belt to hone in 10 different events in the decathlon. Um, so guys in their mid to late twenties are very common at the elite level for decathlon, but it's certainly not unheard of for there to be guys in their thirties. Um, there's, there's a few examples just right now. There's a really good German decathlete. His name's Arthur Abel. Um, I, I believe he's 33 or 34, still competing at a very high level. And if, if I were to make the Olympic team this year, um, I, I would be the oldest American ever to make the Olympic decathlon team, but only by a couple of months. There, there, was, a, there was a man named Kip Jandron who had incredible longevity in, in the sport. And he, he made the 1992 team at the age of 35. What just for the people that don't know or aren't familiar with the decathlon? And quite honestly, I couldn't tell you all ten events. I could probably take name seven of them or something like that. What are the what are the actual ten disciplines in decathlon? Yeah, yeah. So for for anybody who does, isn't familiar with decathlon, um, <clears throat> it's essentially ten track and field events rolled into one. Uh, it happens over the course of two days. You compete in five events each day, always in the same order, and that order is. The 100 meter dash, shot put, high jump. I, I'm sorry, <laughs> I missed one. Uh, you think I've been doing this for long enough, but it's sorry to start over. 100 meter dash, long jump, shot put, 
high jump 400. And day two, you come back and you run the 110 meter high hurdles, discus, pole vault, javelin, and 1500. Yeah, Chris, um, I want to jump into some of this because I think like, you know, my first exposure to the, the decathlon from just a you know, spectator was, you know, basically when I went to college and got on a big enough team where they actually had a, you know, a program that offered the decathlon and, uh, you know, watching the guys and gals who, who would do that was pretty amazing to me because, you know, I'm working on like a single craft essentially, you know, you know, I might range from like the 5,000 to the 10,000 or something like that. But um, really the basic principles are pretty similar. Whereas with a sport like decathlon, you kind of have to be a jack of all trades, but at such a, a, a big level to actually be able to, to perform on any, any one of them. And some of them like give and take from one another. So I would imagine like for you to maximize your 1500 is going to probably take away from like your shot put and that sort of stuff. So like, do you, how do you even begin to decide like which events are going to kind of be ones that maybe are your key events versus ones that are, you're going to have to maybe sacrifice a little bit on, or are you leaning on the ones you're more naturally talented at and really fine tuning and working hard at the ones you have like uh, a, a relative deficit in? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a really good question. It's, it's kind of like the question for, for all the athletes, you know, how do you train for this thing? There's, there's really no one way to do it. There's no one strategy that just that works for everybody. Um, and a, a big reason for that is that every, every decathlete is going to have their own strength, strengths and weaknesses. Um, some guys are going to come in and they're very, they're very fast, they're very powerful, uh, but they might lack that endurance element. And so they, they have to spend a little bit more time training their endurance. Um, they, maybe they don't have to put in as many reps or many hours um, to develop their speed and their power and things like that. I, I'm a bit of the opposite. I've, I've always been um, a really good jumper. Um, I've always been good at the endurance event, the 1500. And, and the speed stuff, like the, the really short distances, the 100-meter dash, the long jump, the shot put, those events that require that um, <clears throat> that really high intensity, high power output, um, that's always been my weakness. And so that's, that's something that I spend more time on. The, the key is to not have any um, major weaknesses across the event. The key is not to have any bad events. So you, as you, know, as you mentioned, you do kind of lean on those things that you're naturally good at. And, uh, and maybe you don't because you have sort of a natural ability or a, a natural inclination or just a feel for a certain event, um, you maybe don't give it quite as much time because you, you know, the, the marginal benefit of improving your really good events is it's probably going to be small. I mean, if you're already good at something and you try to just get a little bit better you can spend a lot of time and a lot of energy getting just a little bit better, but if you can cover your downside and, and not have any bad events, that's, that's really what makes a good decathlon. That's what makes a good decathlete. Yeah. I imagine, you know, bringing everything up to 95% is probably, 
or whatever, you know, some number, you know, I know, I know whenever I'm competing, like getting ready to really try to perform, bringing it, bringing it up that last two to 3% is a pain in the ass. And it is a lot of work for, like you said, very little reward. Again, if you're only competing in, you know, the hundred meter dash, that, that two, 3% is huge. But you know, when you're spreading it out over 10 different, yeah, I did the Highland games, which is kind of similar. We threw a whole bunch of events. It was like a, you know, it was like a, the cath line with super heavy weights, basically, you know, throwing 56 pound weights instead of, you know, two kilo discus and stuff. But, uh, you know, so it's, I, I understand that. And you would, you would focus on the things you would, that you really sucked at and try to hopefully get them better. So you weren't getting last place. Cause it's nothing like seeing your, your good performance drop, you know, dramatically when you just bomb on an event. So you said at the beginning here, you know, you felt compelled and I understand that nature of just this competitive, you just, you feel like you left something undone and you just, you just couldn't live with yourself the rest of your life saying, Hey man, at least I got to try again. But you said you, you learned some new stuff. And so talk about a little bit about what have you learned that's new that is making you think that, Hey, I can do something now at age 34 that I couldn't do at age 26. What is, what is the difference here? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I'll tell you what enabled this first off. And it, it was really the fact that for the first time in my entire life, I, I was a non-athlete once I retired. Like, I, I mean, I started playing like Mighty Might Soccer when I was five years old. Um, my dad signed me up for my first uh, summer track program when I was nine. I mean, I've been in, an at, being an athlete has been my identity since I was a little kid. And so when I was 27 <clears throat> and I retired, it, it, was, it was uncharted territory for me. I mean, I no longer had that athletic element in my day. Um, I no longer... Um, felt like I was a training, competing athlete. And, and while that was difficult for, for some obvious reasons, because you kind of have to reformulate your identity and figure out how you fit into this world, um, it was also extremely useful and beneficial because I was able to look back on my athletic experience from, from the outsider's perspective. And, you know, as, as anybody could probably relate, you know, when we're in challenging situations, whatever it is, a, a relationship, a job, you know, it's, it's hard to gain perspective while you're in the throes of it. But once you're out of it, you know, this clarity kind of comes rushing in. And so that, that's really what happened for me. Um, the, the things that I realized that were so um, impactful for me, there, there's really two things. And one was, I, I realized what a uh, sort of a warped self-image I had during my last few years as, as a decathlete. Um, I, I, long story short, I, I, I essentially plateaued during my last three years of competing. Um, in 2008, I had a banner year. I, I had my lifetime best performances. Uh, it, it was just, it was my first year out of college and it was just, um, it was like a, it was like a yellow brick road was, was being laid out in front of me on my path to, to the Olympics. Uh, the following year, uh, hopes were very high, but unfortunately I suffered a major injury, which kept me out for the entire year. Uh, so that was very tough. But then the following year, I, I got back to full health, <clears throat> but as I said, I, I plateaued um, and I could never get back to where I was before uh, when I had sort of peaked in 2008 and experiencing this plateau, going through this plateau, uh, got me very down on myself. I 
I admittedly didn't handle it very well from a, a psychological perspective. Um, you know, I'd never experienced anything like that. I'd, I'd been used to these incremental gains year after year, just, you know, largely through general maturation. Uh, but, but then I hit this plateau, this ceiling, and I, didn't, I couldn't get past it. And it was really, really difficult. And it was like the longer that I was in it, the more disappointed I was in myself. Um, I sort of lived in a state of perpetual discontent for this, these entire three years. And by the end of it, I unfortunately had a very um, sort of negative image of, of myself as an athlete. I didn't think I was achieving what I was capable of. <clears throat> um, but I, I'll tell you just a, a real quick story about how this, this really hit me. Um, when I retired, I decided I'd join a men's soccer league because soccer was something that I, I always loved growing up. It was something I've been, I did from pretty much the age of five to 18. And, um, when I was training for decathlon, I really missed it. So I retired and I joined this men's soccer league. It's like early to mid twenties kind of guys who've been like playing soccer their whole life. Still, still in really good shape. And, and I'm out there for this first game. And I'm just kind of running circles around these guys. I mean, this was a few months after I'd retired. I've been training for decathlons all summer. <clears throat> and yeah, I mean, my skills were pretty rusty, but I was, I was definitely, it was pretty obvious that I was dominating the field of play, like winning every header ball, that sort of thing. And, and we come in for halftime and my, my new team's sort of looking at me like, man, who are you? Like, where this guy come from? <clears throat> And like, it, it hit me very suddenly in that moment, like, oh my gosh, like I'm, I'm amazing. Like not in any sort of egotistical or arrogant way, but like, I, I thought to myself, oh my gosh, I've been looking at myself all wrong for the last three years. I mean, look what I'm capable of. Like, look at what athletic gifts and talents that, that I have that I've just, I've really discounted strictly because I wasn't achieving, um, you know, the next level of, of my sport. I, I wasn't making Olympic teams or world championship teams. I mean, simply because of that, I was discounting everything that I was doing and everything that I did have. And, and in that moment, it was, it, it really was a very sudden realization like that. But it was very sad in the moment. Like it hit me as a as a sad realization. Like, you know, this is very unfortunate. <clears throat> I could have been, I could have been enjoying the experience more as I was going about it. I could have been appreciating the things I was doing and um, just the, the overall experience I was having. And so that so that was that was really number one, was just um, you know, how, how sort of a, a twisted sense of self-image that I had as an athlete and that it really didn't have to be like that. Um, the, the other thing, which sort of goes hand in hand was that I, I realized that during my last three, three years of competing, when I was plateauing, I became ever more fixated on external results, external success. Um, I was looking for that next hit of status, that next hit of achievement, um, 
that next hit of recognition from family, friends, peers, whoever. And, and I really lost touch with my innate love of athletics. My, my innate love of athletics is what had um, driven my success for all my years growing up through college uh, into the professional ranks. But then once I became so fixated on trying to become an Olympian, because that was that next level of achievement, I, I lost touch with uh, just enjoying the process of training and, and being an athletic body in motion. So when I, when I retired and there was nothing to achieve, at, like I was still a very active person still. I still loved exercising. As I said, I, I played soccer. I did all kinds of physical things. I was still very interested in it, but it was to no end other than pure enjoyment. And it, it just hit me again that like, wow, I haven't been experiencing my athleticism like this in a long time. Like, this is fun again. This is enjoyable. And because it's enjoyable, I'm doing really well at it. Um, and so it was really a cumulative effect. Um, over the course of about five years, reconnecting with, with, with my own athleticism, um, reflecting pretty hard on a lot of the lessons that I learned um, from competing, understanding how I'd gone astray during my time as, as a professional. It, it, led me, it led me to the point where I felt like, you know what, I could come back and do this, but I could do it in a much better way. I, I could do it for much better reasons and because of all that, I could perform much better. And, and you put all those things together, I, I felt like I had to come back and serve as this example of a person who had learned their hard lessons and was willing to put their money where their mouth was. Like, I believed that I could do this in a better way for better reasons and have better performances as a result. And that's, that's really what I'm out here to do. Yeah, Chris, Chris, go ahead. Go ahead oh, sorry, Sean. But that, yeah, that perspective is really interesting to me because I think like sometimes like I see this in the sport of like ultra endurance as well or ultra marathons where the sport is very tiny relative like to, you know, you know, pro sports like the NFL, Major League Baseball, hockey and basketball and things like that. But, um, you know, it's big enough where like if you get a good kind of brand and enough awareness around you and you're putting up race results, you can kind of make that your full-time job or your career versus kind of the history of the sport where like basically everyone did their nine to five and then, you know, showed up to the trail races on the weekend and, you know, everyone was kind of in that same boat. And I think one thing that people realize in this sport, and I'd be curious if you feel this way with, with decathlon is that like you remove a lot of other things from your life when you decide to pursue something at a professional level in athletics so then when you do have a situation like where you have a bad series of races or events in your case, or even a bad season or an injury that sidelines you, there's very little to kind of fall back on to like get gratification from, from day-to-day stuff. Whereas if you have a job or a career outside of that sport, you can always kind of lean back on that. Like if I have a bad series of races, but I also have a career doing something else, I can take solace in kind of progressing that or making benchmarks in that area and, kind of kind of push the other stuff to the back of your mind until you're ready to kind of get back to it again. 
Is that something that you think about? And is that even something feasible with the, the amount of events you try to have to, you know, cause it's also, you're also balancing your own stresses, the ability to sleep and train the level you need to do. Um, like, is that something that comes up with, with the Cathlon with you too? Yeah, that, that is, that's a line that a lot of the athletes ride <clears throat> because yeah, as you, as you mentioned, the, the decathlon is so involved, it requires a lot of training, a lot of energy output, that it's very, it's very difficult to do it in, in the evenings and on weekends, you know, outside of a nine to five job. Um, when I came back in, I, I decided that I was, if, if I was serious about this, I was going to devote all my time to it. And so I, I had to make it my, my full-time gig. Um, <clears throat> but that, that is really the, the dilemma for a lot of decathletes. Cause it's like, I think everybody, I, just about every decathlete wants it to be their full-time gig, but sometimes it's not financially feasible. So they've got to work, uh, part-time or maybe even full-time and, and try to do it on the side, but that's, it's, it's hard. Um, going, going to what you said initially about, um, you know, how an athlete could fall back on other elements of their life, other elements of their identity when their training and competing isn't going well. Um, that I, I think you hit on something really important right there because anybody who's training as a professional and, and, and the way that I define professional is how you go about it. Like, what is your attitude towards it? Um, you know, are you, are you doing it, you know, just kind of for fun when it works out, you know, when you have time or when you have energy or, or are you really dedicating yourself to the endeavor and trying to maximize your genetic potential? Um, it, to me, that that's the difference between amateur and professional. It doesn't matter so much how you pay for the endeavor. Um, I think that one of the things that has allowed me to be more resilient now when things aren't going well, and, and like, I'll, I'll give you a prime example. Like for the last month I've been dealing with, um, with like a, a growing injury that has really reduced my ability to train, uh, at least the way that I want to. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a problem that has occurred many, many times in the past. Um, but I, I think the difference now compared to the way that I might've dealt with this in the past is that I, I recognize that <clears throat> decathlon is something that I do and, and it's not something that defines me. Um, I know that I'm going about my decathlon training in a, in a way that I'm, that I'm proud of, uh, no, no matter what sort of setbacks or injuries occur. Like I, I, I'm proud of the way that I go about things, even the way that I go about trying to solve these, these problems of injury. Um, and so even if I'm not able to train the way I want to, or, you know, God forbid, if I was kept out of major competitions this year due to injury, um, of course it's hard and of course it's disappointing, but I, I think a, a person has to fall back on 
um, an understanding that they are, they're, they're not entirely defined by their performance. It's, it, they, they have to have more of a, I guess, a, a solid sense of self that is, that is durable uh, beyond um, setbacks of competition and training. All right, folks, this episode of Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a meat delivery company that brings you high-quality beef, chicken, pork, salmon, and scallops. What does this mean? All products are natural and humanely raised or sustainably wild-caught, as is the case with their salmon and scallops. If you are concerned with how the animals you eat were raised, rest assured, ButcherBox partners with farmers who are inspired by Dr. Temple Grandin, a member of the Humane Farm Animal Care Program's scientific committee. Their beef is 100% grass-fed and grass-finished. The chicken is organic and the pork is heritage breed with no added sugar. So head over to ButcherBox.com and place an order today. And don't forget to enter promo code HPO for a discount. Thank you for supporting one of our long-standing sponsors. Now, back to the show. Hey, hey Chris, um, beyond the, the sort of the psychology, you know, the, the being in a better place, being more, maybe enjoying what you're doing more and not being just, you know, st- potentially stressed out because that can, that can be a potential cause for poor performance. Um, and I just wonder, I mean, you know, are you training with a coach? Do you have coaches? But more importantly, um, you know, what have you trained? Have you changed anything in your training style, the way you train, perhaps lifestyle, the way you eat, the way you get sleep? Any of those things have changed and helped to make you think you're going to be able to perform better now at this age than you were before. And what have those results been this far? I mean, you're, I mean, arguably, I think, what are we about four or five months out from the trials? Uh, where are you at relative to where you were in 2000? 12 and 2008 to, to make you think that, Hey man, this is, this is realistic for me. What, what, what are your, what do you say to that? Yeah. Um, there, there are some, some differences in the way that I train. Certainly. Um, <clears throat> you know, just over the years you become, I think everybody just becomes more educated and, and more maybe mature and disciplined about the way that they eat, sleep, recover, manage their time, those sorts of things. Um, so I, I think that those, it, nothing has been too drastic that I'll, that I'll go into to detail, but I, you know, I eat very clean. I, I, I get the sleep that I need. I'm very disciplined about that. Um, so I think those little things add up over time. And, and now that I'm older, I've just had more time to educate myself about all this stuff. So I, you know, I do the little stuff, but the, are you going to say something? Go ahead. Well, I just want to say, you know, you say you eat very clean. I, I just wonder, did you not eat as clean as a 20 something year old or what, what, what is the shift there? Yeah. I, you know, I, I think, so I, I do know the shift. It was, there was a, there's a little bit difference in my mentality. So when I was younger, uh, going through college, early twenties, um, early days as a professional, mid twenties, my mentality was just get enough food. Like you're expending a whole lot of energy. 
it's important just to get enough calories in you and, you know, generally try to, you know, keep it uh, healthy stuff. But the most important thing is just to get enough food. And I, I think that that gave me a little too much leeway in what I ate. Um, and so now I'm much more particular about what I eat. Of course, it's still important to uh, get enough calories in you so that you have enough energy to, to train and do what you need to, to do throughout the day. But I'm, I'm much more particular about what I eat. And, you know, I, I stay away from sugar and alcohol and processed carbohydrates um, pretty intensely now. Whereas before I would, I would think like, well, it's fine. And, you know, I just need to, I just need more calories. Mm-hmm. How much, uh, just not to totally off track what we were talking about sure. for you, what is a typical training day like as far as how many hours you put in, how many sessions you put in and are you tempted to go on a plant-based diet after watching the game changers movie or anything? like that? Yeah. Yeah. Really good questions. Um, so my typical training week, in, in terms of dedicated training at the track, it's about five to six days a week. Um, I definitely have at least one day where I stay away from the track and it's just rest, recovery, that sort of thing. Um, on the days that I train, one of the things that's really different about the way that I trained before, so in, in the past, um, and this was, I don't know if it was lack of education or just a time constraint, but all of my training would happen in one massive block. And when you're an athlete in school, it just kind of has to be that way because of classes and things like that. Uh, But we just followed that same pattern after school as well. But now I break it up. Um, I think I I found, I got, I got some good advice on this um, about a year and a half ago, and I found it to be really impactful in my own training, but I I try to limit my training sessions to about 90 minutes. Um, you know, sometimes they'll go a little bit longer, but I I really aim for 90 minute sessions because I find that it just, it's a lot easier to stay physically and mentally sharp for 90 minutes rather than four hours. And we used to train for just, you know, straight four hour block. And that's really exhausting. Um, I, I'm not, the, the, the science expert on, on this, but I do know that there's a lot of scientific evidence that shows you can have <clears throat> much more high quality training sessions when you do limit your, your time like this. So on a typical day, um, it's usually two 90 minute training sessions, but it could be three as well. Um, my, my training will range from like one 60 minute session on a very light day to three 90 minute sessions on a heavy day. And in every week, you're going to have some array of that. Um, to get to your question about uh, nutrition, plant-based game changers, I, it was amazing. I mean, I'm sure you experienced this yourself, but I, I was like one of the last people to find out about this documentary. But I just had so many people come up to me and like, you've got to watch this. You've got to see this documentary. Like, you're, it's going to change your life. Um, and, and I, I watched it and I, I just, I wasn't like, I wasn't that moved by it. Um, I felt like they raised some good points and um, I, I'm, the, I'm the type of guy who eats a very well-balanced diet. I've been a big proponent of vegetables for a long time, but um, I just, I think that 
if you're not eating like fatty fish, for example, like you're really missing a big opportunity in nutrition. And so I, you know, I game changers, there was a lot of anecdotal stuff in that movie. And, um, I, I, it just, it just didn't sway my thinking. I kind of had an idea of what good nutrition was for me prior. And my, honestly, my thoughts haven't changed much after it. I don't, I don't know good about it. Yeah, I'll just put I'll just have my two cents in, and, and and you don't you may not know that I am somebody that eats pretty much a carnivorous diet, and you know Zach has set world records and he eats a whole bunch of meat. He's not fully carnivorous, but he has found good recovery in, in eating just a bunch of meat. Uh, I've got I've been in contact with a couple of Olympians and, and an Olympic coach who has several of his athletes on a basically a pretty much an all meat diet, and they're they're getting really good results and setting PR. I just find it's interesting the the spectrum at which we can perform at. So that's just kind of an interesting perspective thing. But back to, um, I guess, your personal performance. So how's it going? What's going on? Is this, is this made a significant difference? And are we going to see you, uh, you know, you know, you in, uh, where the hell are the Olympics? Is it Tokyo? Where are the Olympics this time? Tokyo? Tokyo. <laughs> yeah. Are we going to see you there this year? What's the deal? Yeah. So I, I mean, when I got into this, when I decided to do this again, I, I was convinced that I could be the best decathlete I'd ever been from a performance standpoint. I, I could score higher than I ever had. And, and I'm still very confident that I can do that. Um, I had my first um, introduction back into competition last year. It's sort of treated last year as the warm-up round for 2020, but I had, I had a full competition schedule. And um, I, I felt like I, I didn't perform as well as I thought I was going to. Um, you know, there, there were some some kinks in my training strategy that, that I needed to work out. But I, I felt like it was really useful to go through that. Um, and I've made some important changes going into 20, going into this last fall of training and going into 2020. And I, I feel like I can have the best decathlon I've ever had. And if I do that at the Olympic trials in June, there's a very good chance that I will make the team. Um, in decathlon, like no one's a given, you know, it, it's the sort of event that can really beat you up. And at the end of the season, it's like, who, who knows who's really ready to go from a health standpoint. Um, but that is one thing that I felt like I have gotten a heck of a lot better at is managing my, my rest recovery and avoiding injury. Um, also bouncing back from them when they do happen. So I'm very confident that I can get to that meat healthy. And the way that my training's going now, I feel very good. Um, I, I honestly, I expect to have a, a lifetime best at the Olympic trials. Are you getting an inkling? I mean, you're up in, you know, we talked about, sir, you're up in uh, Fort Collins, Colorado. I mean, the track is, I mean, it's cold. I mean, it's not really conducive to, uh, uh, what I would consider good training. I mean, do you have indoor facilities where you can do some of the, some of the events, some of the running, the hurdles, the sprinting, and then outdoor, you know, I mean, I guess you can throw into a net uh, for something like discus and shot. I mean, I don't, I don't know how you can do it. Maybe you can do a javelin. I don't know enough about javelin to do that, but are you seeing signs like this was, this was my previous personal best at this event in, you know, 2009 or 2007. And this is what I'm throwing. Now, are you getting like any, any kind of metrics that would say that? And then I would just, 
just and I'll just throw out advice, you know, eat a steak and six eggs every day to add to your training regimen and it'll help with recovery and, and uh, performance in my, in my experience as, as a, as an old, old guy orthopedic surgeon that's still, you know, winning world championships in my sports, but that's just a whatever, but this is for fun, but maybe you'll find that out. But, but let me, let me, what, what kind of numbers and like, I know the decathlon scoring is, I don't know, what is it like? Nine nine thousand or something. I don't know the scoring. Uh, you know what? What were you scoring before? What do you think your potential is now? When you add everything up, where are your strengths? Where are your weaknesses? Unless that's a state secret, I don't know. <laughs> but but what, let's talk a little bit about that stuff. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So this this last year when I was I, I competed in three decathlons in two thousand nineteen, and it has been very interesting to see what my marks were in those three decathlons with, um, with just six months of full-time training under my belt. I mean, I, I'd been preparing physically, certainly prior to that, but I'd also been working a full-time job. So I was, I was preparing myself physically evenings and weekends. So six months of training under my belt, I, I get back into decathlon training and it was, I don't know if it surprised me so much, but a lot of my events were right back where they were when I left off. I didn't blow anything out of the water. Um, <clears throat> I didn't have any lifetime bests this past season, but I, I was right on par in most of my events um, throughout the season. However, the reason that I didn't um, Overall, the overall decathlon score wasn't as good as I, I had been doing in the past or, or was as good as I really had hoped and expected to be this past year was because my, um, my speed events were off. Um, I found that getting – so my, my, my technique in a lot of the events was still there for me. It's amazing just how, like, ingrained that is in my – my neurology um, just kind of right there for me, but the, the speed development has taken more time and six months of full-time training just wasn't enough to get back to where I was. So like my hundred meters was off, my hurdles was off and my 400 was off. But in terms of the field events, the long jump, the high jump, shot put, discus, javelin, um, and even the 1500, those things were right on par with where I was. And I, you know, as I said, that was a good starting point. It, it really helped to have a full year to kind of assess where I was, to assess some, um, what was working in my training and what wasn't. And so making some adjustments going into 2020, I feel like, um, all of my events are going to benefit from just having more time to train and doing it in a, in a smarter way. Hey, Chris, um, I want to hop back a little bit to kind of what we were talking about when you were telling us about kind of your training volume and frequency and maybe dive in a little deeper as to like what you're like doing during some of those sessions. Because, uh, you know, when I think of like a program that I'll do, uh, it's periodized. So, you know, I might like, depending on what part of the year I am in, I could be doing fairly different activities. So given that you have 10 events you're working on, I'm just curious if there's like 
kind of like a foundational type of like strength program you're doing to kind of keep yourself at a specific baseline that kind of feeds into all those events to some degree. And then are you like kind of layering things on top of that so that you're peaking at the right time or how does that kind of change throughout the year? And then when you are kind of in peak training, what does like, you know, some of those sessions look like, are they more technique based or are they like just doing the event and kind of what types of intensity are you doing within them and that sort of stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we, I, I'd start with this in terms of my, my lifting, which is a major element of, of my training. I, I follow um, Cal Dietz's model, the, the triphasic training model. Um, I experimented with a couple different lifting programs, philosophies last year, and, and the triphasic model really worked well for me. I felt like I was able to peak really well. And that, that's huge for a decathlete. Um, you know, you put in this huge base of training, but then you want to get yourself like really neurologically primed for those two days of competition when it really matters. Um, so that's, that is, that's a thread that runs through my entire training. Um, in terms of preparing for a decathlon, <clears throat> The, you, you start out, you start out very general and you got to build this big base of strength and endurance. Um, and then as the year goes on, you're doing things faster and shorter. You know, just as, as the months roll on, things get a little shorter, a little faster, a little higher intensity. And, and I'm talking in terms of like running workouts on the track, um, doing plyometrics, pulling sleds, things like that. And the, the technical work of the events um, runs throughout the year. Now, in the, in the fall of the last three months, you know, it, it's a lot of drill work. You're, you're doing very, you're, you're breaking the events down and you're working on just the fundamentals of, of each of the events, whether it's the high jump or the discus, whatever it is. Um, but you just hundreds of reps of drills that maybe work on a, a third of the entire movement. And again, as the year goes on, you're, you're expanding, um, how much of the event you're working in the, on at a time. Like you might go from short approach, high jumps to full approach, high short approach high jumps in the fall to full approach high jumps uh, in the spring. And the closer you get to competition, you want your training to resemble competition. So you're, you're, not, you're not doing as many drills, uh, maybe a couple ju just to, um, to dial in the, the footwork or, or whatever it may be. But the closer you are to competition, you want your practices to be really high intensity and, and mimicking what you're going to do in competition. You know, that makes a lot of sense. Cause I think even, even in my sport, which is quite a bit different than yours, it's um, you know, we follow that same structure where you're placing the workouts and the things that are the most specific to the event you're preparing for closest to that event. And then you're kind of building your plan out backwards. So for me, since I'm running like all day, sometimes 
I'm doing a lot more long runs, slower, lower intensity things near that race. Whereas at the beginning of my training, I might be doing some more like VO2 max type workouts in those early phases of training since those are still important. They're just not relative to the intensity that I'll be doing on, on race day. So it's almost kind of a reverse. And then obviously you have, you know, 10 events versus one. So there's some nuance there, I'm sure. Uh, but yeah, that's really interesting. Cause I, we had a, we've had a podcast on uh, Brian Sanders and, and he has done at least one or two uh, decathlons as just like recreationally. So I'm kind of curious about that. Like, because I think this is probably one of those sports where if you don't know, you don't know. And if you do, you kind of have an idea of what's there. Is there like an actual like circuit for people if they wanted to do a decathlon? Can, is that fairly easy to find or is it pretty difficult? Do they have to travel like across a few state lines to get to one? Yeah. So it's, um, it's actually something that's pretty much anybody could get into if, you know, if they had the inclination to do it. Um, are there circuits? Uh, yes and no. Sort of at, at the very elite level, there, there, is a, there is a circuit or um, sort of globally recognized set of competitions that um, you can be a part of, you can earn points in. And at the end of the year, you know, based on your point accumulations, you, you win prize money. But the, the thing about track and field is that like, it, it is something that is available to pretty much anybody at any level. Um, a lot of collegiate meets that happen throughout the year that aren't conference championships, that aren't national championships, they're just sort of like the early season weekend competitions that a, that a university puts on, these are often open to the public. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they, they want people who are, who are serious and have some training and kind of can kind of add to the competitive atmosphere. Um, but if somebody is in that, is at that level, they, they can, they can hop in and do it, you know, to pay the 30, $50 entry fee and, and participate in one of these meets. So, now, there, there's a lot of decathlons that happen throughout the year that are um, they're considered open, which just means you don't you don't have to be invited. It's not a closed set of invites. It's it's open to whoever would like to participate. Chris, I want to ask you. Um, you know, I had a little experience when I was in Highland Games. I, I, I on a whim went out there and did a uh, Masters track meet. You know, or you know, I basically threw a couple of field events. And at that time, I was training with a guy named John Godina, who was a uh, Olympic uh, shot and discus guy who was a very well accomplished world champ and uh, and I and I really didn't have very good technique. I was just a big strong guy. I was 280 pounds and I and I ended up you know I was you know first time I ever got I was like Masters All American in, in the discus and it was kind of funny the weight throw and the super weight throw were like what I was throwing with one hand in Highland Games. So with two hands, so I was able to just get out there and just throw these really decent distances. But I couldn't couldn't fathom I would suck at the fifteen hundred and I had the high jump. You know, I'm just you can't be a good high jumper at two eighty. And uh, but what is a, a, a dad, the athlete physique? I mean, what is I mean, where are you at? I mean, is there is there like do you get too heavy, too light? Is there a certain narrow area where you have to stay? What do your numbers have to look like in the gym as far as it looks? It seems like most of the events you describe are really uh, power events or strength or explosivity events because I'm looking at all these numbers 100 meters the jumping the throwing those are all you know those are all a lot of explosivity and then the, really the only thing I see out there which would which would require significant endurance would be the 1500 uh, and, and so how do you manage that body and what was your body composition 
strength lies now versus what you were, you know, say 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So the, as you uh, observed, the decathlon is speed and power based. And so the best decathletes, they, they have that, um, that disposition. They're, they're powerful, fast guys um, for the most part. Um, and so, yeah, just starting with kind of like the typical body type of a decathlete. <clears throat> a, a decathlete, it, it can run the gamut a little bit, but for the most part, you know, you, you can't be too heavy, as, as you mentioned, because you got a high jump and you, you've got a pole vault, which is, you know, very weight dependent. And you've, you've got to run three and three quarters laps in the 1500. And so if, if you're, you know, big and, and powerful, you might do really well in seven events. But if you're struggling in the high jump in the pole vault, which has uh, a really big point accumulation, you, you can really struggle. So a, a typical profile of a decathlete is anywhere from like 5'10 to 6'4. So they're a little bit on the taller side. Um, I'm 6'4 I'm myself. And, and the weight is going to be, um, well, the weight's probably a little bit bigger window, but you, you see guys who are anywhere from like 175 to 210. That's a real, that's a real common window. That's going to cover probably about 85 or 90% of the Catholics. So you, you've got these little taller guys. Um, they're, they're muscular, but they're, they're not bulky. And uh, they have they they have speed and power to them, um, so that's kind of the typical look with decathlete. It, it's funny, me personally, I my body composition has not changed much at all in the last ten years. Um, I, I will tell you, people say I look skinnier, so I I don't know, maybe I'm carrying the weight a little bit differently, but I weigh exactly what I did. Uh, eight years ago when I finished my training and obviously I haven't grown or shrunk at all. Um, my numbers in the weight room are very similar. Um, I, I probably spent a lot more time and energy in the weight room in the past. So I was, I was probably stronger back then, but I was also, um, <clears throat> I, I don't know if that strength necessarily converted into greater performances. Um, I, I could probably, I could squat a bit more than I can now, but was I faster doing it? I think it just, it was, I was a bit slower and stronger and now I'm, I'm quicker and, and not as strong. And, and I think that that's more the way to be. Um, so yeah, it's, <clears throat> yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I've, some people have described the athletes as the ultimate athlete, you know, the most athletic people on the planet. And I can certainly see where that, where that discipline holds. Uh, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you have this, to be able to do all these things, you can't be at an extreme. It's the same thing with like CrossFit athletes. You're, there's no six foot five, 250 pound successful CrossFit, CrossFit athletes that are going to win the CrossFit games. It just, it just doesn't work that way. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. I run, uh, you know, I wrote, I've got a book I wrote recently. It's out. And, and in the first chapter, I talk about what inspired me to be an athlete. It was actually Bruce Jenner mm. back in the day. I think it was at 76 Olympics where he won. Yep. And, you know, it was on the Wheaties cover. And, you know, now he's, maybe not so inspiring as far as I'm concerned, but 
Um, not that there's anything wrong with that. It's, you, always, you always have to have that caveat out there. But then, then I ran into you know, his teammate, Fred Dixon, lives near that, not far from me, and he's following my diet, or at least from an interesting standpoint. I you know, went out and had lunch with a guy, and he's still in phenomenal shape, and he's probably – whatever, you know, whatever Jenner is, you know, late sixties, something like that. And maybe, maybe he's early seventies right now, but he looks great. And he's just a phenomenal looking guy. And he's, he's exactly what you described. He's about six, three, six, four. Looks like he's about 200 ish pounds and lean and muscular and still looks like he could probably, you know, do some damage out on the, on the, on some athletic sports. So it's really impressive what you guys do. Um, what, um, where can people follow you to, I mean, is there a place people can just kind of follow, follow along and see what you're doing or kind of, uh, you know, kind of give you some support or, cause I, I don't know if you're getting sponsors for this. I know. I mean, a lot of times it's tough to be a full-time athlete. I mean, Zach, you get some sponsorship from your running shoe country company. I don't know if you know, Zach, he's a world record holder in the hundred miles in both trail and, uh, and uh, track. So he's, he's a, just a running guy. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, where, where, where do we find, where do we form, find more about you, Chris? Yeah. Yeah. Um, people could definitely follow along and that, that would be fantastic. I think this is going to be quite an interesting story over the next six, seven months leading up to the Olympics. But um, I am on social media, Instagram and, and Facebook, Chris Helwick on Facebook. And then my Instagram handle is what the Helwick separated by. <laughs> Um, I, I also put out a, uh, a weekly email that, that really ranges in, in, in content, but it just gives people a glimpse into my world and sort of what's on my mind. Um, but people can sign up for that at chrishelwick.com and that would be, that would be fantastic. Awesome. Yeah, we'll definitely link that stuff to the show notes. I think you know, I want to follow the, the weekly email because I know like when I was in college, it was always interesting because, you know, I'd walk to the AM class, you'd, you'd peek into the gym and I'd see the decathlete there doing whatever workout they were doing in the morning and you walk by a lunch and they're in there doing something else. And then you go in there in the evening practice and they're still in there doing something. I, I'm sure they had left, but uh, it kind of highlights just the know what you described earlier where like you get these these sessions during the day and you're just trying to piece them all together and get them in there so I think it would be very interesting to follow your journey as well as kind of how you piece everything together um, and probably a lot of life lessons to take from that just in general. Hey Chris if you got another second I just wanted to go back on something that you that you said that I did I didn't are you saying because you said that the, the the high jump and the pole vault have a big weight are they are this are all the events weighted exactly equally or is there some more are they skewed one way or the other no that that's a really good question they they are not weighted equally um <clears throat> the decathlon is generally more favorable in terms of point allocation to the sprints and jumps um so pole vault and high jump they, there's you just generally earn more points in those events compared to say the discus and the shot put. Um, the shot, the disc and the jab are a little stingy as we say in terms of points and uh, the 1500s kind of middle of the road. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's another thing that you take that you keep in mind while you're training is like, you know, the marginal benefit of improving a foot in the shot put or, or a meter in the shot put, like really isn't that much. And you could, you could spend all your time trying to, to be a, or throw a meter further in the shot put for not much gain. Whereas, 
Um, if you vault six inches higher in the pole vault, I mean, you can really, you, you can really add a lot to your total that way. So those are things to keep in mind. Yeah. And I, and I just, you know, just not to keep this going too long, but I mean, when I try to learn how to shot and throw the disc, that, that is incredibly technical. I mean, the, people think you just, you know, just to sit there and throw this big 16 pound ball, you just, you just launch it. I mean, there's so much technique and balance and skill and then strength and explosivity goes in. It's incredible what these guys are able to accomplish. These guys that can chuck it out past 70 feet or whatever. I mean, it's just amazingly, or any of the events. And I, and I, and I don't doubt pole vault and high jump all have, have the same amount of stuff in there. So hats off for what you do. It's wonderful uh, to see that athleticism. And I really hope you good luck. And, you know, it's always, I always root for the old guys, you know, as, as, a, as a definitely an old guy myself, uh, we'll, we'll like to see. Zach, any last words? No, I think we covered it all. I, I will ask one thing, Chris. What's your high jump PR? Uh, my my high jump PR in metric is two oh nine, which translates to six ten and a quarter. Wow, man, that's it's it's always funny because I always think that one's really interesting because it's like you're putting your entire body over that bar, and like you know, six foot ten is getting to the point where like if you did that underneath a basketball hoop, you could almost reach up and touch the rim as you're going over the bar. And I don't think people always understand how much of a like technique and an actual just like athletic feat that that event is. But awesome. Well, thank you so much for giving us your time. And I'm looking forward to getting this one out to our listeners. Yeah, guys, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed talking with you all. Hey, folks, Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing. And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.